Good evening, everybody. Welcome to session three of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we have uh, seen, of course, now long since, uh, seen the destruction of the Earth. Uh, we have headed off into the further reaches of the galaxy as far as far away and chiefly deserted Damagrin and the government research facility thereon. Uh, and, of course, uh, we have uh, sampled the delights of Vogon poetry, uh, concerning which we spent a fair amount of time last time. Tonight, we're going to begin with uh, the uh, with some... So we, we've had some sort of nonsense poetry last time, and tonight we're going to start with some nonsense uh, poetic criticism, uh, which, will, uh, which will be fun. Uh, so we're going to do that. Then we're going to move ahead and look at the Heart of Gold and get to the Improbability Drive uh, and see how that gets kind of folded into the story. And along the way, we're going to be looking at some of the, 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 some of the same issues with the tone of the narrator and uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide and all that stuff. So um, anyway, that's... Um, uh, how unlikely is it that we will get to the improbability drive, asks Arthur. Uh, I think, well, I don't know what the odds are uh, against it, but uh, <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to see. I think we'll get to the improbability drive. I do. Uh, uh, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, we won't get as far as uh, uh, Magrathea, but we'll, that's, that's next time we will focus on the story at Magrathea. So, um, okay. All right. Um, good. I right, just check and double check and I see somebody's not hearing me, uh, making sure my audio is working, which it is good. All right. So but before we begin quickly, one quick announcement, um, and I made this announcement last night, but I wanted to repeat it again tonight. Um, just to remind you that TextMoot is coming up soon. Uh, TextMoot is one month from today exactly. It's on January 13th. Um, but the reason, though, I, I want to uh, announce it with some urgency is that uh, we have to close registration uh, like a couple weeks in advance of it. Um, so the registration is only really going to be open until the end of the month. So we're, we're getting down to the last couple weeks to register for TextMoot. Uh, so if you're thinking about coming, if you're if you can, if you uh, believe you can get yourself uh, to Fort Worth, Texas, uh, on Saturday the 13th for an awesome one-day conference, uh, then uh, I highly recommend that you do so. I'm looking forward to that. So, um, so just just to remind you, there is uh, there is a little bit of um, of uh, 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 urgency attached to that increasingly. So, um, cool. So just, that's my last my 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 quick reminder here tonight. Let's go back to Vogon poetry now uh, and, uh, uh, and, and resume here. Oh, my title today is uh, Don't Knock It. Of course, uh, this, you may remember, is what, um, is what Ford says to Arthur when they, you know, sort of come to their senses uh, in the hold of the Heart of Gold. And uh, he says, see, I told you I, I would think of something, right? And, uh, and Arthur says, oh, but the odds against that were astronomical, right? And Ford says, don't knock it. It worked, right? And that's kind of my theme in thinking about the improbability drive, right? Don't knock it. It worked. That's what we see happening later on. So uh, it's relevant to the improbability stuff. So, Arthur, you see, this is how confident I am that we're going to get to the improbability. Um, uh, uh, stuff because I, I've made it the title of my class, and as you know, we're always guaranteed uh, 
to do that. Um, and okay, and great question. No, I generally don't use disc for those of you who attend other other classes and stuff. I generally don't use Discord for this because I, we, I use GoToWebinar. The point of using Discord in addition to Twitch, as I do in exploring the Lord of the Rings, is it gets rid of the lag so that you can listen to me in real time. Um, whereas on Twitch, there's a there's a delay, there's a, a, a few seconds delay, so it, it makes it hard when I want to like ask a question and get people to respond. Now I ask a question, then I have to kind of wait for the lag to catch up with me and then people to type. It really slows class down. Um, so I use the Discord channel there in order to have some time synchronous interaction with people. Um, but of course I'm using GoToWebinar for that, so I don't need Discord for that here. Uh, anyway, so that's the, uh, that's the, that's the, um, that's the moral. So, okay. Um, all right. Uh, Yana says, do we know the delay here? Sometimes it seems I see something before you hit enter. No, Yana, it's just because I know you so well, I'm anticipating your question before it even comes in. I just, like, I sense it, you know, across the Atlantic, what you're about to say. Um, uh, But, no, I mean, in theory, this should be in real time. Uh, So... You know, that's it. It's just, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just totally on top of it. And, and in particular, looking forward to your questions and comments, Yana. So that's, that's the situation there. All right. But let's go back to Vogon poetry. Ford was rasping for breath. He rolled his dusty tongue round his parched mouth and moaned. Arthur said brightly, actually, I quite liked it. Ford turned and gaped. Here was an approach that had quite simply not occurred to him. The Vogon raised a surprised eyebrow that effectively obscured his nose, and was therefore no bad thing. "'Oh, good,' he whirred, in considerable astonishment. "'Oh, yes,' said Arthur. "'I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was really particularly effective.'" So, this is the first, the first gesture of Arthur's criticism— is to praise its metaphysical imagery. This I found really funny, uh, because, of course— Metaphysical imagery is is there is no metaphysical imagery in the Vogon's poem. Uh, as I said, I actually don't find the Vogon's poem all that bad. Uh, in fact, I, I find some. I mean, as as nonsense poems go, it's there there are parts of it. There are some of the words that are really quite good, or at least quite effective, uh, in you know for the effect that he's attempting to uh, to generate. Um, so I, I in, in some ways, I actually do quite like uh, the Vogon poem, but, but there's no metaphysical imagery in it, uh, and this is this is really. Fun. I mean, I don't know if this is in particular the joke that Adams was making, but uh, of course, the metaphysical poets John Donne is the most famous of the metaphysical poets, um, and um, but as an English teacher, um, I. Uh, <laughs> Nobody really like very few people understand what that means, right? Like uh, metaphysical poets or metaphysical imagery is sort of one of those things that students are kind of like taught to say without really understanding. Like most people will know. I mean, if you if if you if you ask like a student who has taken a good Brit Lit class, for instance, you know, name a metaphysical poet. Most of them can come up with John Donne as an example of metaphysical poetry. But also nobody knows what that means. Like, what is metaphysical about it, particularly? Um, but it's a really impressive-sounding word, right? Um, and uh, so that seems to be, of course, a, it's, it's sort of no surprise to 
be that it's the first thing that Arthur kind of reaches for uh, when he seems to be uh, when he seems to be uh, uh, BSing. Patrick says it reminds uh, him of every terrible attempt at responding to the more creative English classes I had to take. Um, yeah, no, I mean again, Patrick as somebody who taught many intro Brit Lit classes and English 101 classes in my in my day, I I, I recognize this genre of uh, of of Arthur's response here. Um, but uh, and Karita, I too love the 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 jab at the at the ugliness of the Vogons. There, this is in fact my favorite line about the physical appearance of the Vogons because we're given, you know, I mentioned this last time. We're given a few individual details, um, but we're not given any kind of cohesive description, right? Just the we just get get sort of tossed these interesting. Um, little kind of scraps, right? Um, like the fact that his nose is above his eyebrows. That doesn't really assist us in imagining what he looks like, but certainly conveys the idea of exactly how bizarrely formed the facial structure of the Vogons probably are. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're right. Uh, you know, several of you are talking about how he's. It's. It's. He, he really does sound like an undergraduate who is. Uh, who is. Who is BSing, um, and uh, and yeah, you're you're right. Of course, David. This is not. This is hardly unique uh, to to English classes. The appeal to like a student who had who remembers enough jargon words to sound vaguely like they know what they're talking about, right? But they're just kind of stringing together the jargon words in ways that don't make any sense. But notice here, notice the implication here. On the one hand, um, uh, Ford is marveling at Arthur's idea, right? Here was an approach that had quite simply not occurred to him, right? Uh, to to, To try to bluff their way out and pretend like they liked it and to make up stuff to say... Uh, in praise of it. Um, but of course, think about the implication for the Vogon and Arthur's conception of the Vogon, right? Um, that he thinks that this praise is... Because it's not... Remember, it's, 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 not a, it's not an English 101 professor that he's trying to appease, right? Uh, it's the Vogon poet that he's trying to appease. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> Mike Moore suggests that being polite about bad poetry is perhaps a British superpower. Possibly. Possibly. Um, oh, and uh, interesting rhythmic devices, too, continued Arthur, which seemed to counterpoint the... Uh, uh, he floundered. Ford leaped into his rescue, hazarding counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the... Uh, he floundered too, but Arthur was ready again. Humanity of the Vogonity, Ford hissed at him. Ah, ah yes, Vogonity, sorry, of the poet's compassionate soul. Arthur felt he was on a home stretch now, which contrives through the medium of the verse structure to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other. He was reaching a triumphant crescendo. And one is left with a profound and vivid insight into, into, uh, which suddenly gave out on him. Ford leaped in with the coup de grace. Into whatever it was the poem was about, he yelled. Uh, The use of increasingly sort of passionate and colorful language to describe he knows not what at all, 
right? One is left with a profound and vivid insight into, but he hasn't the faintest idea what he gets an insight into, right? Uh, and I love the sort of joke at, you know, sort of the idea of relativism, you know, like whatever it was the poem was about, right? Which doesn't have to be anything in particular, you know, uh, but uh, whatever it was, we got a profound and vivid insight into it. Um, uh, but you notice the key mistake, right? It's not just a verbal slip that Arthur makes here. Um, the whole premise of his BS is based, in fact, on the one word which is the biggest problem, right? Humanity, that is, right? Notice the, there's only one positive thing that he says. I mean, okay, I mean, by, by positive I mean like he actually says a, a concrete thing rather than just kind of vaguely blathering, like interesting rhythmic devices. Uh, calling the rhythmic devices interesting doesn't really help much. What is interesting about them, right? What devices does he use? Um, uh, and, of course, the idea that, as Ford is suggesting, that the rhythmic devices can counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor really just doesn't make any sense at all, right? Comparing the the sound qualities of the poem on the one hand to the uh, to the metaphorical properties of the of the poem on the other hand, right? That's all again almost as nonsensical as the poem itself. But there's one non nonsensical thing that he says at the heart of all of this, right? Um when he leaps in to complete the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the... what? So, Arthur, what is the underlying metaphor of the poem, right? And he throws out there the humanity of the poet's compassionate soul, right? That is the one single concrete thing that he offers uh, as actual analysis here. The rest of it... I mean, notice that the, the sort of enormously transparent emptiness of the rest of that, Right? Um, you know, he gestures vaguely at the verse structure, right? Through the medium of the verse structure, to sublimate, transcend, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies, but he doesn't even have nouns for those things, right? He has no idea what is being sublimated, transcended, or uh, which fundamental dichotomies he's talking about, right? So he's, you know, there... That, that's what I mean when I say in those places he's not saying anything positive at all. Those are simply empty jargon words, um, including profound and vivid insight, right, um, into, again, the, 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 the vacuous vagueness of whatever it was the poem was about. Almost everything that they say is completely empty, except for the one thing, right? The humanity of the poet's compassionate soul. And that, of course, is exactly where the problem is. Not only in the fact that he's accidentally said humanity instead of vogonity, but of course, it's the kind of BS answer that he goes with, right? The one single answer, the one single piece of, not exactly interpretation, because it's not going to actually have anything to do with the poem he actually heard, but the one kind of claim, that he, one sort of interpretive claim that he does make, is based on pro-human assumptions, right? Um, and, uh, of course, he's quite wrong. Exactly, Tony. Compassion is the one quality that the Vogons would despise. I mean, there's, there's almost nothing he could have landed on. As safe as that might seem, right, the humanity of the poet's compassionate soul, that would kind of fly in most cases, right? 
for the desperate BSing undergrad, but um, but not here, right? Um, of all of the things for him to land on, that's a very, very bad one, very, very inappropriate one uh, in this uh, in this case. And Arthur, I, I can't help but think that there's a kind of symmetry here, right? The symmetry between the Vogon poem as, um, you know, sort of a, a mockery of modern poetry to some extent, and Arthur's analysis as mockery of uh, of criticism. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that we can definitely see both of those things going on. And I am almost forced to that conclusion um, by what happens, uh, what happens at the end, right? Here's the... Cause, and notice, the Vogon is listening, right? He's paying attention to the criticism that they're making, and he hears it. He hears the, the positive claim that Arthur makes. So what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved, he said. He paused. Is that right? Ford laughed a nervous laugh. Well, I mean, yes, he said. Don't we all, deep down, you know? Uh... The Vogon stood up. No, well, you're completely wrong, he said. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. Guard, take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. Uh, So yeah, this is... uh, Ironically, their analysis doesn't work not because it's poor analysis of the poem, not even because, again, they're using transparently, uh, transparently empty words, you know, and, uh, and, and, and sort of catchphrases and jargon terms. Um, but, uh, but because they actually, the, 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 the claim that they make, which again, he hears and understands is incorrect, right? He is, they have failed to understand. Now, would he, uh, would he not throw them out the airlock if they'd gotten it right? Right, if they had made a claim based, in fact, on Voganity instead of humanity. I think it's interesting, of course, that it's Ford here who, under cross-examination, is uh, answering the question, is that right? Right? And says, yeah, don't we all deep down, you know, um, don't we all want to be loved? And that's interesting to me. Exactly as Tony was just saying, it's interesting that Ford is just as clueless about hand- how to handle this situation as Arthur. Um, and one of the things that I come back to, again, which, I, which I've been pointing to since the beginning, one of the things which seems to me very consistent across this book is that even when the story is attempting to emphasize the alienness of things, right? The, you know, the, the, the bizarreness of aliens, how, you know, the whole, you know, as we were talking about it, you know, looking at the very first few paragraphs and thinking about the ways in which we seem to be being prompted to look past our human assumptions and our geocentric point of view. But nevertheless, everybody still kind of, at the end of the day, we all, deep down, you know, kind of think alike, right? Um, and almost everybody that we meet seems to have sort of fundamental values and worldview that we can understand and that would sort of fit in. And it's not to say that it's the same as everybody on Earth and that everybody would agree with them. But, you know, Zephod Bibelbrox is not completely 
different. He's not totally alien, right? He would fit in on Earth. Like, for instance, at a party in Islington, right? He would fit in. As long as he only had one head and two arms, uh, or appeared to at the time, he would fit in perfectly well uh, at an Islington flat party. Uh, and, um, and again, and that's true of almost everybody. Not quite the Vogons, right? The Vogons, in this sense, seem to be the ones that are different. But notice that Ford himself... Remember, wouldn't it just have to be the Vogons, right? Um, Ford despises the Vogons. The Vogons are, like, outside the the sort of social sphere of, like, acceptable, cool alien races, you know, in the galaxy, as far as from... Based, anyway, on, on Ford's perspective and the perspective of the uh, of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, so, um... Yeah, anyway, it's, um... It's an interesting testimony. Again, this, especially the fact that it's that it's Ford here. Um, it's an interesting testimony to this kind of baseline universality that we can see at work here. And you know, as far as thinking about that, thinking about the um, the significance of that, like that is to say, how significant is that? Because there are two ways in which we could understand this, right? We could draw one of two conclusions about this fact that the aliens, howsoever alien they may look, you know, whether they're like a super intelligent shade of the color blue or something, um, nevertheless seem to have the same kind of general um, cultural values and outlook that we have as far as money and, you know, drinks and, <laughs> uh, you know, and all this and, 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 and all the rest of it, sex. Uh, you know, this just very, very common cultural ground. And, you know, deep down, everybody wants to be loved. Um, one conclusion is that, well, this just shows that Douglas Adams isn't trying real hard when it comes to world building, right? That this is not really, he's not really making any, any thoroughgoing attempt to depict an alien society or an alien point of view. Um, and I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think it's fair to draw the conclusion that says, you know, this is, um, that's not the highest priority in this book. That seems to me a fair, a perfectly fair conclusion to draw. But I don't think it's quite fair to say that it's... that the book is merely casual in that. You know, that this isn't significant. Because I do think it's significant. And the reason I think it's significant is, as I've been saying since the first class, the way that we keep getting that being pushed in two directions, right? Um, We're not allowed just to remain comfortable in our geocentric point of view, right? That The narrator especially keeps coming back and kind of, I don't know what, rebuking that, correcting that in some ways, um, such that I find that it's, although the sort of fundamental humanity of almost all of the aliens is something which seems to be a recurring theme, um we're not allowed just to kind of forget that they're aliens entirely, right? Um, this, this is, uh, and if we, if we think about it as just from an earthly point of view, we will sometimes stumble on things as of course, Arthur and Ford both are stumbling on the, uh, uh, the, the Vogons here. Um, 
Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah. Now, David, I agree that the Vogons are sort of a joke or stereotype of, heart, of you know, sort of faceless, officious bureaucracy. They're not faceless, of course, right? Their faces aren't in the, you know, proper structure, but they, they, they do have faces. Um, I agree with that. But even that, see, I don't know that we can... One possible direction we could take that, David, right, is to say, okay, the Vogons are evidence not that it's inappropriate to apply a a basically human kind of cultural norm across the galaxy. It's just that everywhere there are some people who are kind of outside the human family and don't think like everybody else. Bureaucrats, for instance, right? Um, so the Vogons are an example of that, you know, the, that, and just as, of course, Mr. Prosser uh, was an example back on Earth. But see, Mr. Prosser is, um, and Evan was just asking about this, are we meant to be thinking about Mr. Prosser when we look at the Vogons? Evan, I think we are. I mean, the parallel between the Vogon construct, you know, the big yellow Vogon constructor fleet uh, and the, the, you know, the bunch of bulldozers that shows up at Arthur's house is sufficiently clear that Prostechnik Vogon Jeltz is uh, very plainly in the parallel position to Mr. Prosser. Um, so I think we have to be thinking of him. But, but see, Evan, this is exactly where I keep coming that I keep coming back to, it's the, the I, I can't be comfortable with just saying the point is that there are, there's, there's a few Vogons everywhere, right? Just as the Vogons among all of the races are these, you know, sort of deviant, deviant, inhuman, or inhumane, um, both inhuman and inhumane, right? Um, bureaucrats. So there are people like that in every race, including humans. But Mr. Prosser wasn't like that. Um, Mr. Prosser, we got to see into Mr. Prosser, right? And it's interesting, thinking about the parallel between Mr. Prosser and Genghis Khan, right? Um, On the one hand, he's paralleled genetically, right, with the great Khan, uh, who, you know, leads his uh, his screaming hairy hordes across Europe, and we get all those you know, sort of uh, genetic visions that he has in his mind, right? Uh, and sort of semi, semi-memories. Um, but the effect of that is not to say that Mr. Prosser is really, at least I can't see, that the effect of that is to say that Mr. Prosser is, um, you know, a heartless and heartlessly savage, you know, uh, conqueror who just loves to destroy things and is and would do things out of sheer bloody mindedness like a vogon right remember he's the effect of the of the connection to Genghis Khan i feel is to reduce mr prosser right he is comically unlike genghis khan um it is it's his differences from genghis khan that are constantly being referred to right um, and even the, you know, the diff- the speeches that he's giving to Arthur to try to convince him to get out of the way of the bulldozer, right? Um, you know, that one move that he made, you know, do you know how much damage the this bulldozer would take if I rolled right over you? None at all, right? Uh, 
that's the Vogon line, right? That's 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 the direction the Vogons would go. But but he doesn't back it up, right? He he can't go there. He's not Vogon like. Um, so again, when I put just as when I put Mister Prosser uh, sort of next to Genghis Khan as the text sort of compels me to do, it ends up making Mister Prosser look not savage, not heartless, not cruel, but pitiful and even pitiable. Right. As the poor guy, like, you know, rolling his hat around his head because he has no idea what to do. Um, so, too, when I put Mr. Prosser up against prosthetic Vogon Jelts, I get the same effect. Right. Um, Mr. Prosser is downright lovable compared to prosthetic Vogon Jelts. Um, and so, again, I can't see that the conclusion is... Um, there are Vogons everywhere. We saw that back on Earth because we didn't see that back on Earth. Um, at the end of the day, Mr. Prosser just wants to be loved too, right? Um, he is not knocking houses down with his bulldozer fleet in order to throw his mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief, right? That's just not true. So, um, anyway, I'm, um, I'm trying to follow my train of thought back to where we came from here. Um, The question that I've been thinking around here is how significant is this? You know, where does this leave us? Or rather, what position is this book placing us? Um, Because we can... As readers, some people like the contact with the alien concept, right? Some people like a book that gives them an encounter with a new world, right? And if we like that, if we're looking for that, we can easily make this book more, sort of contain more of that than it does. Right. Focus on the aliens. Again, I you know I talked about how it pushes in the two directions. Basically, what I'm getting at is we can focus on one of the two if we choose. Right. Um, think about the sort of the fun alien worlds that it describes, and and you know kind of revel in the imaginative experience of thinking beyond our world and beyond our culture. Right. Or we can ignore it if we choose to. Um, and every single one of the characters in the book pretty much can become just a, a human being with a relatively thin mask on, right? Um, and the thing that I find really interesting about this book and the way, again, that sort of the two ways that were being pushed at the same time in this book is that it, it seems to me it's almost like um, it's almost like we are being allowed to to choose, but I want to keep thinking about this because I'm not sure that I'm I'm not yet sure that that kind of tension between connecting things to humanity and the human culture and distancing ourselves from the human perspective and from human culture I'm not sure that that tension is something we're supposed to let go of and just f- for us to choose we can choose 
right? You, you know, we, we can choose either one. And it's interesting, when I talk to people about this book, I can hear people choosing either one, right? There are some people who just, you know, it's just, this is just a, a funny book about people, right? You know, about sort of our world and the human condition. Um, and that's what they, you know, they're clearly not thinking of this really even as a work of science fiction exactly, right? Um, and then there are others who focus on a consistency, an internal consistency in the other worlds and races depicted, which I'm not always convinced that they actually have in this book. Um, people who sort of add more internal consistency to this world uh, than I think is really sort of plainly there in the text. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so it's clear that that kind of choice is, 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 is able to be made, but I, I think it might be important that we resist kind of committing one way or the other. Um, anyway, the final comment that was, I have to admit, cathartic for me as an, as an English professor. The guard grasped them both firmly round the neck and, bowing deferentially toward his captain's back, hoiked them both protesting out of the bridge. A steel door closed and the captain was on his own again. He hummed quietly and mused to himself, lightly fingering his notebook of verses. Hmm, he said. Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. He considered this for a moment and then closed the book with a grim smile. Death's too good for them, he said. <laughs> I love this setup. How it seems like, you know, he put on a show of, uh, of you know, like disbelieving what they said and saying they were totally wrong in their analysis. And then, you know, his sort of contemplative repetition of that phrase, which is not quite the center of their analysis, but close to the center of their analysis, right? Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. Is he really buying it, right? And then, of course, his final comment there, <laughs> death's too good for them, um, uh, leads me to conclude that, no, it's it's not that he is briefly taken in or considering this as possibly a uh, uh, uninsightful piece of analysis of his poem, uh, but rather that he is rolling around the phrase which he knows to be empty, uh, and then condemning them uh, for their BS. Um, and Tony, I also really like the word hoiked as well. Uh, that's uh, one of my favorite new words in the book, actually. Um, cool. All right. Let's go back to the narrator. I talked some about the narrator. One thing that I haven't talked about, and also I will admit I'm not representing it uh, on my slides here, and I probably should. Um, I think it's really just out of laziness that I haven't. And what I'm referring to, of course, is the italics. Um, now here, of course, we might get into some textual comparisons, though I notice that both my paper copy and my ebook copy of Hitchhiker's Guide are consistent in their use of italics here. That is, those long italic sections 
in which the narrator is addressing us in a different mode than when he is merely narrating the events of the story, right? Um, yeah. Um, no, Joyce, exactly. Uh, death's too good for them. Uh, I, I totally have felt that <laughs> before. Okay, maybe not exactly that sentiment while grading papers, but only, but but sometimes only a slightly milder uh, version of that. Which Joyce, I guess, means that. Uh, it's us, not bureaucrats, that are actually like the Vogons, I suppose, uh, which is sobering. Um, but still, I, I, I totally, I totally feel it. Um, anyway, um, interesting. Tony says that. So, Tony, are you suggesting that when he shifts to italics, he's going from being narrator to reader? That's interesting because, of course, it's often when he is discussing the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? But not only when he's talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, also, when he's addressing like the the whole preface, right, um, where he was talking about the um, the you know the the incorrect distances and the green pieces of paper and uh, how it was a, a bad move to to come down out of the trees and all that stuff. That whole section is in italics as well. It seems to be when he, again, when he's kind of addressing us in this sort of more informal way, he's not doing his formal job of telling us the story. Um, instead, he's talking to us, right? In a different in a different kind of way. Um, anyway, point is this whole section this whole section is is one of those sections. Um, and I haven't been representing the italics just because when we're seeing it by itself out of context, a whole slide full of italics I find kind of annoying to read often. Um, but um, anyway, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wholly remarkable book. It has been compiled and recompiled many times over many years and under many different editorships. It contains contributions from countless numbers of travelers and researchers. The introduction begins like this. Space, it says, is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen, and so on. After a while, the style settles down a bit, and it begins to tell you things you really need to know, like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet uh, Beth Seliman is now so worried about the cumulative erosion by 10 billion visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete while on, excrete while on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the lavatory, it is vitally important to get a receipt. To be fair, though, when confronted by the sheer enormity of the distances between the stars, better minds than the one responsible for the guide's introduction have faltered. Some invite you to consider for a moment a peanut in Reading and a small walnut in Johannesburg and other such dizzying concepts. The simple truth is that interstellar distances will not fit into the human imagination. How would you describe the tone here? How would you describe the tone? 
the tone of the narration is particularly set off in this passage by the fairly remarkable style of the Hitchhiker's Guide in this particular point, right? Which actually prompts the narrator to comment on the tone and style of the Hitchhiker's Guide, of at least that passage in the, Hitch- in the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? After a while, the style settles down a bit, and it begins to tell you things you really need to know, he says, right? Condescending, Joyce, I agree. Scholarly, Stephen, yes. Uh, he's... We've observed before that he likes explaining things, right? Um, likes the giving of information. Um, notice... Notice the direction of those last two paragraphs. To be fair, though, what's he being fair to? What's he talking about when he says, when he transitions into that second to last paragraph by saying, to be fair, though? Yes, Yana, to, uh, and, uh, Yana and David, but to be, to be fair to the guide, right? He's just criticized the guide, um, saying that the style kind of needs to settle down. I mean, that quote is sort of a sarcastic quote, in a sense, right? In that he's not quoting it in order to, like, show us how wonderful the guide is. Or to, he's quoting it in order to make fun of its style, right? Um that its style needs to settle down and that it's not telling us things that we really need to know, right? Um, and even the introduction, the, his first paragraph before his quotation, right? It's a wholly remarkable book. That sounds like he's going to praise it, right? But of course the word remarkable is uh, cuts both ways, right? Things can be remarkable for lots of different reasons. Um, and then he tells us how it's been compiled and recompiled and the different editors and the different contributions and so, you know, it's um, it's liable to be a bit uneven is the implication that he seems to be making here, right? But but again, notice he's being fair to the guy. So he's not just making fun of the guide. He's not praising the guide, but he's not just making fun of the guide, right? He is being fair. From the first paragraph to the end there, he's being fair to the guide. Um, but again, I come back to, uh, um, you know, Joyce, what you were saying about its being, his tone being condescending, right? A little bit patronizing. Um, he does, Tony, I agree, try to take a sort of a distant, detached, sort of impersonal um, point of view on it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, Marie, I agree that he's... He is guiding us, right? But he's guiding us in a different way. And presumably towards a kind of a different end, right? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy presumes that you are not only engaged in a particular kind of thing, right? Um, Namely, interstellar travel on a tight budget. But also that you have a certain point of view, right? 
Um, which that is, just, you know, like so. For instance, that you want would want to know how to mix a pangalactic gargle blaster, right? Um, and of course, the fact that we're told that the the Hitchhiker's Guide sells rather better than the Encyclopedia Galactica, which just gives us the sort of scientific definition of alcohol and explanation of its properties, right? Um, suggests that, of course, it's it's uh, it connects with many people effectively, right? Um, but again, what's he, the narrator, guiding us about or toward? Who is he talking to, right? Um, and from what perspective? You know, what is his frame of reference? Who is he, right? What's his relationship to this story? What's his relationship to us? Um, and I don't mean this in a, you know, Wizard of Oz kind of way. I mean, I don't mean this in the, like, who's the man behind the curtain kind of way. That is, if we... Trying to guess which character in the story might be the narrator is not what I'm getting at here. I'm not saying that it may be entirely impossible to do that. I'm only saying that's not sort of the game I'm talking about. Um, I mean in general terms. Um, answering the question, I mean, if, if one were to say, like, oh, I think it's Ford Prefect or whatever, that wouldn't even answer the question to me. Like, okay, well, but yeah, but so what? But then, okay, fine. What perspective is Ford Prefect uh, taking? Like, what is his range of knowledge? What is his attitude towards us? What kind of book does he think he's writing? Right? Um, and, of course, it's interesting to me that the, we, we are given, from fairly early on in the story, we're given these two different models. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the one hand, and the Encyclopedia Galactica on the other hand. And we're clearly instructed to see the Encyclopedia Galactica as boring, right? Just full of information which most people don't really care about, whereas the Hitchhiker's Guide tells you stuff you would really want to, you really need to know, as he says here, right? And notice how he digresses in parentheses, in order to pass on a particularly useful and colorful piece of information as an illustration of the kind of thing that we really need to know, right? Um, but he didn't have to do that, right? So he clearly, he seems to enjoy the kinds of details that the Hitchhiker's Guide has to offer, just as, for instance, he doesn't actually need to give us the full recipe for a pangalactic gargle blaster, right? Um, the point he was trying to make about the difference between the Hitchhiker's Guide and the Encyclopedia Galactica would have been equally well conveyed by merely telling us the Encyclopedia Galactica defines alcohol and tells us about its properties, whereas the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tells you what the best drink in the universe is and how to mix it, right? And what volunteer organizations <laughs> exist to help you recuperate afterwards. Um, he could have just said that, right? Um... But he didn't just say that, right? He went on and quoted the entire recipe. And here, he's not just said, after a while the style settles down and begins to tell you things you really need to know. To be fair, though, when confronted with the sheer enormity, he could have just gone on like that, right? But no, no, we need to digress and tell us about the, be the fabulously beautiful planet Beth Seliman um, and about, uh, you know, what you need to, how you need to get a receipt in the lavatory every time you uh, uh, visit it uh, on the planet, and for what reason. He's got to give us this colorful anecdote, because he clearly likes those, right? And yet, although he is drawn 
to the things that, and enjoys sharing the things that the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide shares, he's, as Joyce said, and I agree, he's condescending, not only towards us, but towards the guide itself, right? Um, and his own tone, in a sense, sounds to me a little bit more... Um, uh, sounds to me a little bit more like the Encyclopedia Galactica than it sounds like the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? Um, and yeah, Lynn, that's a great observation. Lynn is emphasizing the better minds than the one responsible for the guide's introduction have faltered. Um, and Lynn, I do think he is including himself here, right? What he's about to say is that he can't think of a really satisfactory way to convey how big, really big, vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big space is, right? Um, he's kind of been chuckling at the uneven style of the guide and using this as an illustration of that, right? And yet he's suggesting that, to be fair to the guide, it is really hard to do, right? But yeah, Lynn, I think he's squarely putting himself in the category of better minds than the one responsible for the guide's introduction. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, several of you are pointing to human imagination. And I agree that that's an interesting... It's an interesting point. It's an interesting phrase. Because it could be taken in one of a couple ways, right? Um, I... Hmm, I tend to think that he's being more... He's carrying on being condescending in that phrase. I don't think that that's a mistake. He knows he's addressing humans. That, I think, has been pretty clear from the beginning, that humans are the primary intended audience of this book, right? Not of The Hitchhiker's Guide, but of the book that the narrator is writing, right? The story that the narrator is telling. Um, Here's the interesting thing there. One way to read his reference to, you know, that interstellar distances will not fit into the human imagination. One way to read that is that he's, on the one hand, sort of humbly admitting that he too, even though his mind is probably a better mind than uh, uh, the one responsible for the guide's introduction, but yet even his superior mind uh, can't effectively convey how big space is. And yet, he kind of lobs it back with some top spin at the very end. They will not fit into the human imagination. Ah, so maybe the problem isn't his mind. Maybe the problem is the human minds whom he's addressing, right? It's just, it's not possible to make humans understand uh, interstellar distances. So it's the limitations of the human imagination that are really the problem here, not the limitations of his own capability to explain, right? Um, 
But here's the problem. The problem is that he's talking about... uh, He's talking about the first paragraph of The Hitchhiker's Guide, which is clearly not, emphatically not, targeting humans, right? Targeting Earth. Um... I mean, remember, they barely had an entry for Earth, even. So it's clearly not only the human imagination that has a problem with it. Um, Again, if he's being fair, the whole premise of his being fair to the Hitchhiker's Guide, to the uneven style of the Hitchhiker's Guide there, um, is the fact that it's just flat difficult to make anybody understand it. Because it's everybody that the everybody in the galaxy, you know, all, all the different races in the galaxy that the Hitchhiker's Guide is addressing. But it's that last line, the fact that he singles out human imagination in particular, that leads me to think his target audience is human, um, because his. His, his, he's, he's not saying interstellar distances will not fit into anybody's imagination. It's human imagination with which he is concerned. Not the guide, but him, the narrator. And, Mike, exactly as you say, and a couple others were noting as well, even his brief attempt to explain it in the previous paragraph with the walnut and the peanut, you know, in Redding and Johannesburg, those are Earth references. Right, all of them, all four of them are Earth references. Um, he's trying to explain to people, right? Um, yeah, and Marie, that's a really interesting point. Uh, Marie says that the guide starts out with what it probably considers very important, especially for a hitchhiker. Um, yeah, the distances of space, right, and uh, and and how vast it is, because you need to understand that as a framework for when you're setting out to hitchhike across the galaxy, or you need to understand what that means, right? Um, but Maurice, it's really interesting that, all, so the guide thinks this is important for hitchhikers, but the, the, the narrator kind of dismisses it, right, in a sense. Um, uh, suggesting, you know, that maybe we as humans aren't made to be, to be hitchhikers. Um, I think that's possible. Again, there seems to me to be a kind of consistency in, like, that we humans have a hard time imagining this, and apparently so does everybody else, which is why The Hitchhiker's Guide starts with it. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. One of the, and I should have emphasized this earlier on in talking about this slides, one of the things that I think we have to confront more and more, again, especially in in relation to the theories that, you know, uh, uh, we were talking about and a bunch of you were suggesting when we were discussing the opening paragraphs of the book, I don't think that the narrator is the guide or from the guide or affiliated with the guide. In fact, the more the narrator talks about the guide, the more the narrator seems to distance himself from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, 
which is kind of interesting to me. Especially since, again, as I said at the beginning, the fact that this book is titled The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the fact that the book that the narrator is writing is um, identified with the guide, right, by title, um, is uh, is interesting. Now, Druid's Fire is wondering if it, uh, does it tune into its audience like the Babelfish? Uh, I don't think so. But again, it doesn't even matter. The guide wouldn't talk about itself this way, right? Um, if all we were getting, I might be convinced that the general f- narrative framework of this story was the Hitchhiker's Guide and the Hitchhiker's Guide sort of editorial team if all we were getting was like Princess Irulan style quotations from uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide framing the narrative, right? Sorry, Dune reference. For those of you who don't get it, we talked about Dune. Uh, oh, goodness, that was a long time ago now. Wasn't that two years ago? Anyway, um, I'm talking about the epigrams at the beginning of each chapter of Dune, All of almost all of which are quotations from books written years later by Princess Irulan. Um We talked about them a lot in the Dune class. But anyway, um, we're, we're not getting that, right? If that's all we got, if these italicized portions were just like excerpts from the Hitchhiker's Guide, then I would be ready to see the Hitchhiker's Guide itself as a framing mechanism, as a framing perspective on the story. But that is, to me, something closer to the opposite um, of what we get in this book. Um, He is uh, the narrator is distancing himself from the guy. Um, yeah, and several of you are saying, Jonathan was just saying, and a couple of people had said earlier, that it um, it sounds like a book reviewer. Yeah, well, I mean, he is reviewing the book, right? I mean, he it's what we get, right? Um, instead of getting excerpts from The Hitchhiker's Guide, we get a review of The Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, and it's... It's not all that we get, though, right? It's not just a review of The Hitchhiker's Guide. Reviewing The Hitchhiker's Guide is one of the things that our narrator does, as well as present us with information. What's the point of this passage, right? The point of this passage is the narrator finally coming around to saying, I can't express, I can't really effectively convey to you uh, the interstellar distances. They won't fit into the human imagination, he only brings up the Hitchhiker's Guide and makes this comment on its on its introduction in order to set that up, right? His review of the guide is a means to his end, what he is trying to convey and what he wants to emphasize to us, the information. He's going to pause his story and give us an aside, just like he has on several other occasions, right? He's nosy that way. Nosy, nosy's not the right word. He's intrusive, the narrator. That's what I mean. Right? He keeps interrupting the story. Right? He keeps setting the story aside in order to lecture us about stuff. Right? Whether it's our own planet, as in the very beginning, right? Or other things here, or the Babelfish, or now the Babelfish we mostly get from the quotation uh, in the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, but uh, but the three worst kinds of poetry, 
another example off the top of my head, right? Um, Vogon poetry is, of course, the third worst poetry. Uh, Joyce, hear that note of condescension again in the of course, right? Is of course, right? All well-informed people like me know that Vogon poetry is the third worst in the entire galaxy. Um, very authoritative, right? Very certain of himself, um, but kindly willing to impart to us um, because we're human, because we're noobs, right? Because we don't know anything about the rest of the galaxy. We need to have all this stuff explained to us, right? Um, anyway. I love this passage. The Encyclopedia Galactica defines a robot as a mechanical apparatus designed to do the work of a man. The marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation defines a robot as your plastic pal who's fun to be with. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy defines the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who will be the first against the wall when the revolution comes, with a footnote to the effect that the editors would welcome applications from anyone interested in taking over the post of robotics correspondent. Curiously enough, an edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica that had the good fortune to fall through a time warp from a thousand years in the future defined the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who were the first against the wall when the revolution came. Now, the first two, maybe three times I read this passage, I completely missed the joke. Completely missed the joke. Um... That is, I didn't notice the shift that the mindless jerks who will be the first against the wall when the revolution comes is a quotation from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the present, but it's a quotation from the Encyclopedia Galactica in the future, right? I completely, totally spaced that. Um, The only thing I paid attention to was the tense, right? Um, That, like, I I was sort of content with the much simpler joke that says the Hitchhiker's Guide sort of, you know, rakishly and off the cuff, uh, you know, insults the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation uh, by saying that they'll be the first up against the wall when the revolution comes. But the joke is that there really will be a revolution and they really will be the first up against the wall uh, when it comes. Um, I'm like, okay, that, 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 that was funny. But the much funnier thing that I failed to notice the first, as I say, two, three at least times I read this book um, was the shift that it's the Encyclopedia Galactica, not the Hitchhiker's Guide, which a thousand years from now is going to be using exactly the same words that the Hitchhiker's Guide uses in the present. Think of the difference between... um, uh, The difference between... The Encyclopedia Galactica defines a robot as a mechanical apparatus designed to do the work of a man, right? That's the Encyclopedia Galactica all over, right? That's exactly the tone of the Encyclopedia Galactica. We've gotten in on a couple of occasions, right? It's so boring that the narrator rarely actually tells us, like, quotes it or anything. It's much more interesting to quote the guide, right, which is fun. Um, But, so we've gotten this quotation, sort of, loose quotation, uh, paraphrase anyway, and we got the paraphrase about the definition of alcohol, right? Those are the only two sort of semi-quotations of the Encyclopedia Galactica that I recall getting at any point. Um, uh, 
But a thousand years from now, the Encyclopedia Galactica is going to be decreeing historically that the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation was a bunch of mindless jerks who were the first against the wall when the revolution came, right? Um, so the funny thing is not just the fulfilling, the, the fact that the insult uh, target, you know, uh, sort of lobbed at them uh, at the marketing division by the guide turns out to be prophetic, right? It's not just that joke. It's that the entire manner of the guide, the entire tone of the guide is going to be, what, taken over, emulated um, by the Encyclopedia Galactica? Now, does this mean that the Encyclopedia Galactica is going to be just like the guide in the future? Or that they're going to, uh, you know, as Jennifer... Uh, Pope is saying, um, you know, does it does it absorb does does the does the Encyclopedia Galactica absorb the guide uh, a thousand years down the road, or do they combine in an unholy alliance? Exactly, one wonders, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, Mike. At the very least, it does seem to suggest that it's going to take the Encyclopedia Galactica a thousand years to get as hip as the as the the guide is right now. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's great. Tom McCarthy says the Encyclopedia Galactica is the book that, that Morgan Stern actually wrote, and the guide is the grandfather's reading of The Princess Bride. Uh, I like that. I like that. Um yeah. And Tony, again, I think that part of the joke is that you'd think that the most important element, historically speaking, in this whole transaction is the revolution, right? Wait, there's actually going to be a revolution? Who's re- who's revolting against whom, right? And under what circumstances and, and, and what's going to happen? But no, we, we, we know nothing about that at all, right? Um, which is uh, which is funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Kate, that is an interesting possibility that uh, Kate Neville is suggesting that perhaps the encyclopedia has not, in fact, grown more hip, but rather is quoting uh, the revolutionaries, right, uh, who were either from the guide or quoting the guide, right, um, that uh, it has become now this sort of the the well-known sort of historical mantra of the revolutionaries, uh, that seems possible. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, Brian, it is interesting, isn't it, that we never get the guide's definition of a robot? We get the encyclopedia's definition and the marketing division's definition. Uh, and then we don't get a third definition. We get a comment on the people. We, we, get, a, we, we get an insult uh, targeted at the people who made the second definition, right? Which is a which is sort of a commentary on the definition, uh, and can kind of suggest to us what perhaps the guide's definition of a robot would be. Um, neither as dispassionate as and boring as the encyclopedia's definition, uh, nor as uh, <laughs> wildly absurdly, vaguely, inappropriately uh, uh, laudatory, right, as the marketing division. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Yana, it is, Yana, it is possible that uh, the guide's definition is something like those that will put the jerks against the wall when the revolution comes. But that's if the robots are, in fact, the ones who are uh, making the revolution. Now, meeting Marvin, that seems possible, in one sense, right? Um, but I think it's just as likely that the revolution is going to be led uh, by the editorial team of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy than it is to be led by the robots themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, But again, notice how in this kind of... He's not exactly being like a book reviewer here, but notice again how the narrator's framework, how the narrator's point of view is firmly outside any of them. The narrator is not affiliated, certainly not affiliated with the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, but not affiliated with either the encyclopedia or the guide, right? He is an objective commentator upon both. Um, indeed, knows a great deal more than either one of them. Um, and is able to sort of guide us, right, in our reactions uh, to both of these works. Um, so again, who is the narrator? Let me tell you one of the reasons why I keep coming back to this. I keep coming back to this because to me this is a really important question to figure out in order for me to understand where I stand as reader in this story, right? Um, and how to take the rest of the narrative, right? Um, Let me give a, a... I'm going to try to do this really, really briefly. I, I, I'm sure I've talked before about Chaucer's unreliable narrator. Um, and I remember, and I think it was here in this, uh, in, this, in this context, in the Hitchhiker's Guide context, talking about the Canterbury Tales and the way that Chaucer does the like different narrators interacting and the different levels of their narrative and stuff like that. The relevant thing is that Chaucer tells the story, the frame tale of the Canterbury Tales mind, right? He tells the story of the pilgrims who are going to Canterbury, not from a, a, dis, a like a completely invisible, omniscient point of view, just telling us the facts about what happened. He makes himself a character in the story, makes it a first-person account, right? He's a character in the story. He's one of the pilgrims, Um but he kind of has his own name and sounds a lot like himself, so it's really easy to kind of forget that he's just a character in the story. Um, but when you pay attention to the narrator, it has an impact for me, and the more I pay attention to Chaucer's narrator, the more serious is the impact that it has. And this is true not just in the Canterbury Tales, where his involvement is more transparent, in the sense that, again, he's literally a character in the story, but even in other Chaucerian works, like Troilus and Crusade, where the narrator, I believe, is, again, a, a fairly discreet character on his own right. When you listen to the character, when you listen to these, these narrative asides, 
right? And you begin to get a sense of where the narrator is coming from and how he's treating you as a reader and what his own attitude is, it helps us to contextualize some of the things that he says, right? I called Chaucer's narrator unreliable. I'm not a huge fan of that phrase, unreliable narrator. I mean, it kind of works, or at least it... Because he hears the... The reason I'm not a big fan of that phrase is that I think it's it's an insufficient description of the phenomenon that I'm talking about. That is to say, it's... Uh, the, the problem isn't just that you can't trust the narrator and what the narrator says. Um, the, the situation, I think, the way I would describe the situation, it's not that you can't trust the narrator. It's that you can't take the narrator for granted. right? You can't assume that the narrator is objective in what the narrator is telling you. right? Again, it doesn't mean he's untrustworthy, necessarily. It just means that he has a particular point of view, possibly even an axe to grind. Um, certainly his own foibles and weaknesses that come through, right? And so therefore, we can't necessarily... We, we have to remember that when we're looking... When, when So when we ask questions like... You know, what is this... Like, thinking about the depictions of humanity and Vogonity and, and uh, uh, you know, Mr. Prosser and Genghis Khan and, you know, all the, the sort of the, those things we were talking about earlier, the question about world-building and consistency and, and all that stuff and, and the way this whole story is depicted and treated. The narrator of this story is sufficiently intrusive, sufficiently insistent in his own voice uh, in breaking in and addressing us in his own voice that I feel the need... When it shifts from italics back into regular print, right, and we're now just back into the objective narrative, the more he shifts, the more italics we get throughout the story, the more uneasy I get in just ignoring him when we're not in italics. Do you see what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Now, Mike and Matthew are suggesting other terms. Agendaed narrator, biased narrator, uncooperative narrator. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, opaque narrator? That is, not transparent, Right? The narrator is not merely a glass through which we see this. He's not. There's he, a window through which we see the story unfolding before us, right? Um, he is a, a medium through which the story is being well, not filtered exactly. That suggests bias, and I'm not necessarily implying. It's not necessarily about bias. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jennifer, um, Agatha, Agatha Christie's story with the famously unreliable narrator is a really great example. Um, but see, that narrator is unreliable in the sense that the narrator tells you things, some things which are not necessarily true or leads you to believe things which are not necessarily accurate, right? Um so that's more un, more classic 
classically unreliable, right? Um, now, I agree, Patricia, opinionated narrator is true, though that it's not always the case, and I'm not sure... This narrator is opinionated, right? He clearly approves of some things and disapproves of other things. We can see characters of his own personality... Uh, I keep saying his, by the way, because I need a singular pronoun, and Douglas Adams is male, so I'm saying his. Um, But I don't recall any positive reason to think the narrator masculine, necessarily. Um, But uh, anyway, I'm trying to explain what I'm trying to get at here with the narrator and why I'm so interested in these passages and the relationship between the narrator and the guide, the narrator and us, and the narrator ultimately in the story, right? Um, Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. Let's talk about the robots. In the corner, the robot's head swung up sharply, but then wobbled about, this is Marvin, of course, but then wobbled about imperceptibly, it pulled itself up to its feet, as if it was about five pounds heavier than it actually was, and made what an outside observer would have thought was a heroic effort to cross the room. It stopped in front of Trillian, and seemed to stare through her left shoulder. "'I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed,' it said. Its voice was low and hopeless. "'Oh, God,' muttered Zaphod, and slumped into a seat. "'Well,' said Trillian, in a bright, compassionate tone, "'here's something to occupy you, and keep your mind off things.' It won't work, droned Marvin. I have exceptional I have an exceptionally large mind. Um yeah, Tony, I I think I, I also hear Stephen Fry's voice, so uh that's the other reason I think why I'm using a masculine pronoun uh and talking about the narrator. Um uh I love Marvin, the robot. What do we see in Marvin? Marvin's genuine people personality, right? He has this almost superhuman uh, ability. And I agree, Mike, he's not paranoid, right? Paranoid is an inappropriate word to apply to Marvin, right? What Marvin is, is passive-aggressive, right? And he is passive-aggressive with an enormously advanced precision, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go straight to the next passage and think about both of them together. Ghastly, continued Marvin. It all is. Absolutely ghastly. Just don't even talk about it. Look at this door, he said, stepping through it. The irony circuits cut into his voice modulator as he mimicked the style of the sales brochure. All the doors in this spaceship have a cheerful and sunny disposition. It is their pleasure to open for you, and their satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. As the door closed behind them, it became apparent that it did indeed have a satisfied, sigh-like quality to it. Hmm. Ah. 
it said. Marvin regarded it with cold loathing, while his logic circuits chattered with disgust and tinkered with the concept of, direct, of directing physical violence against it. Further circuits cut in, saying, Why bother? What's the point? Nothing is worth getting involved in. Further circuits amused themselves by analyzing the molecular components of the door and of the humanoid's brain cells. For a quick encore, they measured the level of hydrogen emissions in the surrounding cubic parsec of space and then shut down again in boredom. A spasm of despair shook the robot's body as he turned. Come on, he droned. I've been ordered to take you down to the bridge. Here I am, brain the size of a planet, and they asked me to take you down to the bridge. Call that job satisfaction? Because I don't. Um, now, notice the irony of Marvin's position, right? On the one hand, Marvin clearly has a genuine people personality, right? Uh, it's not a fun personality, right? Um, and you'd think, by the way, that uh, perhaps the programming division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation might be even sooner up against the wall than the marketing division, right? After all, the marketing division didn't invent this stuff. Um, however, uh, again, on the one hand... This is a genuine people personality, right? He's depressed, uh, and he's passive-aggressive, right? At the same time, it's not a people personality, right? Why is he depressed? Why, like, what depresses him? That paragraph in the middle there... Um, Further circuits cut in saying, why bother? What's the point? Nothing is worth getting involved in. Right? Just look at how that paragraph goes. Marvin regarded it with cold loathing, while his logic circuits chattered with disgust and tinkered with the concept of directing physical violence against it. Right? A very human reaction. Uh, when you are feeling depressed and something, someone is being really cheerful around you, right? Uh, the concept of directing physical violence against them is something that you might tinker with, right? You might be disgusted by somebody who acts like that door acts, right? So in that sense, again, my point, genuine people personality, right? Further circuits cut in saying, why bother? What's the point? Nothing is worth getting involved in, right? Again, right, just like a depressed person might do, Right? Um, further circuits amused themselves by analyzing the molecular components of the door and of the humanoid's brain cells. For a quick encore, they measured the level of hydrogen emissions in the surrounding cubic parsec of space and then shut down again in boredom. A spasm of despair shook the robot's body as he turned. Why is Marvin depressed? He has a genuine people personality. But his programming is not, in a sense, the cause um, of his depression, right? He's not just been 
pro I mean, he may have been programmed with a depressive and passive-aggressive personality, but that's not the point, right? At least that's not what we see. What we see is not him just acting out his programming. It, we're set up to think that, in a sense, right? The first half of that paragraph sounds like that. Especially notice the, the repetition of the circuits, right? His logic circuits chattered with disgust. Further circuits cut in. Further circuits amused themselves, right? The, the, the recollection of the circuits, right? This is just his programming, right? These, uh, the, these different circuits are, are programmed to cut in at these particular points with these particular reactions, right? But his depression is his despair has a cause in his own experience, not just in his programming. And we see that boredom is a human thing in the sense that he shares it with some humans, most likely, right? But what we see is somebody who is emphatically not simply acting out his programming, which happens to be of an unattractive personality, right? That's not the issue here, right? Rather, he feels despair and depression because he has cause to feel despair and depression. Um, yeah, he's underappreciated, he's bored and underutilized, has no self-actualization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... So what's the effect of Marvin, then? Notice, on the one hand, the fact that the computers and robots in the Heart of Gold are given... that they have the GPP feature, right? Which I love that we're introduced to the, to the uh, you know, the, the abbreviation first, right? Um, you know, like it's just a thing. Right. Um, they've been given the GPP feature. Genuine people personalities. Because remember everybody, you know, back to the everybody being human, right? Everybody being able to, you know, having humanity at the end of the day, you know, unless you happen to be sufficiently unfortunate to have vulgarity instead. Um, but... It's not so. At first, it just kind of sounds like a joke on that, right? Like even the robots have been programmed to act like, to act, understandably, right? Um, somebody was making a, a Star Trek joke before. Um, who was? Uh, I'm trying to find who that was. Um, uh, I can't find it. Somebody was talking about how Data would be impressed that. Uh, Marvin has already uh, mastered uh, uh, contractions, right? Um, but data is a wonderful example, right? Is, is a, a wonderful comparison point, right? Um, one of the things that makes Data's character in Star Trek The Next Generation such an interesting character um, and sort of one of the roles of data. I mean, if you think about it, really, it's in the next generation, it's primarily data in Worf, 
which play the roles of providing a non-human reaction, right? Um, highlighting the sort of human responses that everybody else has, right, to things, and the sort of, like, you know, hypersensitive reaction that, you know, Counselor Troy has um, to d- perspectives that are alien, right? This, of course, was Spock's role, similarly, in the original Star Trek, um, and which, uh, which, interestingly, the role... The, the one who plays that same kind of role in Deep Space Nine would be Quark, actually, I would say. Uh, well, Quark and Odo basically both play that role to some extent. Um, and then, of course, we get back to a... we get back to a to a Vulcan in Voyager. Um, but but it's a fairly common trope in Star Trek. And the... Amph- and, and, and what it, again, what it does is it prompts... you know, all of those characters prompt us to... Um, to take for granted or not to take for granted, rather, human presumptions and human points of view. Um, But uh, Marvin is not like that, right? Marvin is the first impression, based on the literature of the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, um, is that Marvin is almost the opposite of that. Right, Marvin has been programmed with a genuine people personality, so he has been programmed to respond to things like a real person would. Right, and at first it sounds like the joke is simply that yes, on the one hand he has a genuine people personality, but on the other hand, it's uh, not a very adaptive people person. Like you know, why would you program you know a uh, uh, a depressed and depressing robot? Right, uh, and again, but. You can't get away from the passive aggression. I think it's really, even more than depression. I think the passive aggression is really the root of Marvin's personality, right? I'm not. I'd hate to think I'm getting you down at all, right? Um, but anyway, um, but that's not the joke, and that's not Marvin's role in the end. When we look at Marvin closely, what we see is he's not a person. Right, he does, in fact, in a different way, give us that data Spock point of view on things. Right, um, we do see in Marvin one of the only consistent and consistently sort of resistant to humanity points of view in the entire book. Everybody else kind of sees things alike. Marvin, again, yeah, we can relate to, we can, we can see again, genuine people personality. It's not like he's completely inhuman, and yet his problems are inhuman, right? He wouldn't be nearly so depressed if he were a person. His problem is that he is a robot, that he is a computer, um, that he does have a brain the size of a planet, Right? If he didn't have a brain the size of a planet, then maybe he would call taking them down to the bridge job satisfaction, right? Remember, Trillian suggests it, right? Going back to the previous passage. Here's something to occupy you and keep your mind off things, right? Trillian is being kind to Marvin, right? Zephod makes no attempt to be kind 
to Marvin, right? Zaphod is just annoyed by all of the computers on the Heart of Gold, right? Especially the onboard computer, but Marvin as well, right? He finds them annoying, and he dehumanizes them. Well, I was about to say he dehumanizes them by not treating them with any dignity or respect or sensitivity at all, but then again, he doesn't really uh, treat anybody with dignity or respect, so I suppose it's consistent. Uh, But anyhow, um, my point was, though, that Trillian is being kind and humane to Marvin. And what she's saying is something that kind of might work, in a sense, right? Um, something to occup- here's something to occupy you and keep your mind off things. At the very least, this suggests, like, hey, I care, right? I want to involve you. I realize that you're depressed. Just he, Remember, he, he was just complaining about standing around doing nothing, right? So she's like, okay, here's something for you to do right? Maybe that will make you feel better, right? It won't work, he says, right? Um, Because, again, he's not... um, He's not human, right? And so this kind of human and compassion, uh, this kind of humanity, you know, the humaneness of Trillian... um, and her is not not only not useful it's not just that he doesn't appreciate it uh, and I agree David that there are some similarities between Zaphod and Marvin right they do both loathe the ship's computers David I agree with you um, but um, anyway yeah Stephen I agree the problem is you can't give him enough to occupy his mind and he knows it right he knows it and that's why he's depressed because he's not human. So again, he comes across, he acts and talks like a human, except even more effectively, right? Again, it's, it's like eerily... Um, again, just as, just as Data in Star Trek The Next Generation has, like, inhuman speed and precision in, like, you know, pushing buttons on the console, uh, so Marvin has inhuman accuracy and precision in acting out his passive aggressive <laughs> intentions right i mean the the amazing precision of s- pulling yourself up to your feet as if you were about 5 pounds heavier than you actually are right i mean that's good that's good and i think again we all can imagine exactly what that's like right i think we've all probably known people who stand up that way right who manage to 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 you know convey that kind of uh, uh, that that kind of perspective but when we when we actually listen to Marvin, when we actually kind of push back against it, um, we find that uh, what the the kind of the bedrock of Marvin's problem is his inhumanity, right? He's the only one, with the possible exception of Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz, who doesn't share that fundamental humanity. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Brian. He is quite good at bringing other people down, and he knows it, right, and the effect that he's having. Um, let's talk about improbability, like the improbability of my getting to improbability. Uh, so, ha, I beat the odds. Um, don't knock it. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Here's our narrator again. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says that if you hold a lung full of air, you can survive in the total vacuum of space for about 30 seconds. However, it does go on to say that what with space being the mind-boggling size it is, the chances of getting picked up by another ship within those 30 seconds are 2 to the power of 276,709 to 1 against. Pause for a second, just again to notice the tone there. Um, Ooh, wow, James, great point. Great concluding point on Marvin there. James says, in the end, Marvin doesn't want to be loved. I agree. He doesn't want to be loved. Um, But anyway, uh, wonderful point. Notice the tone here. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says that if you hold a lung full of air, you can survive. However, right, it does go on to say that what with space... Okay. And we play a game. It's a, a game of highlighting the connotations of the way a sentence is phrased in the book by rephrasing it and seeing how that changes it, right? So it would, could, it would go like this. What if that first sentence was, According to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you hold a lung full of air, you can survive in the total vacuum of space for about 30 seconds. Very subtle change, right? It's the same sentence. But you hear the difference in the tone? If you say, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide, if you hold your, a lung full of air, that makes the statement about holding a lung full of air completely depend upon the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? Say, by, if you start by saying, according to, this is true, right? You're merely, merely appealing to the guide as an authority, right? It is merely the source of your information. But by saying instead, the guide says that if you hold a lung full of air, you can survive. Notice it kind of leaves up in the air, but is that true, right? No, I, 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 it seems to be true. I'm not saying that the narrator is suggesting that it's not true. But again, notice the distance. And of course, we must remember, as Lynn is reminding us, um, that uh, the the comment that the narrator made back at the beginning of the story about how the much of the information in the Hitchhiker's Guide is wildly inaccurate, right? Um, the phrasing there in that sentence leaves at least leaves it open, right? An open question as to whether or not what it's the the only fact here is the fact that the Hitchhiker's Guide says this. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, right? Um, but now notice, notice, um, and yeah, Jan, I know it's not really true because they say in Babylon 5 that you can't last that long, so there you go. So, so that, that proves that it's not true. Uh, um, but anyway, I... Notice now where it goes. By a totally staggering coincidence, that is also the telephone number of an Islington flat where Arthur once went to a very good party and met a very nice girl who, uh, whom he told... Uh, oh no, another typo in the electronic text! A very nice girl whom he totally failed to get off with. She went off with a gate crasher. 
Though the planet Earth, the Islington Flat, and the Telephone have all now been demolished, it is comforting to reflect that they are all in some way commemorated by the fact that 29 seconds later, Ford and Arthur were rescued. The first paragraph states that the Hitchhiker's Guide makes this claim. Two claims, right? A, that you can survive for about 30 seconds, and B, that the odds of getting picked up by a ship in those 30 seconds are what they are, right? Um, he, may, he passes no comment on them. He doesn't endorse those things as facts. He merely says, this is what the Hitchhiker's Guide says. Again, distancing himself. Then he starts telling us things off his own bat, not quoting the guide, right? And notice that what he has to tell us is much more particular and much more much more interesting, right? Um, what he has to tell us is stagger, a staggering fact, which is not in question, right? The staggering fact that that number from the Hitchhiker's Guide, and again, notice, he, he makes no comment on whether or not that number is accurate or not, right? That's not what's important. What's important is that that number, which might be wildly inaccurate, who cares, but the point is that that number happens to be the same as the telephone number of an Islington flat where Arthur once went to a very good party, right? And met a nice girl who went off with a gatecrasher. That's a staggering coincidence. Now, of course, we have no idea the extent to which that coincidence staggers yet at this point in the story, right? The only thing we're told uh, about its staggerment, that is, this coincidence's staggerment, uh, to use a Tolkien word, uh, well, a hobbit word anyway, um, is that that number in the Hitchhiker's Guide happens to be the same as the telephone number of that particular flat, right? Um, and the narrator, of course, is outside the whole thing, right? The planet Earth, the Islington flat, and the telephone have all been demolished. It is comforting to reflect. And that's a statement of fact, too, right? Um, we are being informed that the fact that they are all commemorated in some small way uh, by the rescue of Arthur and Ford is 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 comforting, right? So we should be comforted for what the destruction of the planet Earth. Hey, that's another piece of evidence that the target audience of this book is humanity, right? Um, because we, as humans, would presumably need stand in need of comfort as we reflect upon the demolition of the Islington flat, the telephone, and planet Earth, right? Um, and Rachel, yeah, I too love the fact that it doesn't mention that the nice girl and the gate crasher have been demolished, right? We're left to assume that, right? But, uh, uh, as indeed Arthur himself assumes it. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, let's keep going. Arthur and Ford. When they first land in the Heart of Gold, lots of very strange things start happening, right? In fact, one can't help 
but go back. Uh, and recall the point in Ford's BS that Prostechnik Vogon Jelts repeated to himself the surrealism of the underlying metaphor, right? As surrealism is exactly what they encounter after they're thrown out the airlock by Prostechnik Vogon Jelts and end up in the heart of gold, right? I don't know what the underlying metaphor is, necessarily. Um, and if it has anything to do with the, you know, the fundamental humanity or Voganity of things. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, Stephen Walters points out that we, we, we shouldn't theoretically need any comfort for the destruction of the Earth since we were, were going to be demolished as well. Right, since we are not Arthur Dent, nor are we Trillian, so uh, that's it for us then. We're wisps of ozone, presumably. That's the joke, right, Stephen? That's the thing that I find so amusing and interesting about the frame of the narrator, is that as we look at it, we find he's addressing people who are theoretically destroyed, Right? He has no audience. This story that he's telling is about how his intended audience was destroyed and doesn't exist anymore, right? Anyway, uh, as uh, Arthur and Ford are experiencing the, the surrealism of the underlying metaphor, "'Good God,' said Arthur. "'It looks just like the seafront at South End.' "'Hell, I'm relieved to hear you say that,' said Ford. "'Why?' "'because I thought I must be going mad. "'Perhaps you are. "'Perhaps you only thought I said it.' "'Ford thought about this. "'Well, did you say it or didn't you?' he asked. "'I think so,' said Arthur. "'Well, perhaps we're both going mad.' "'Yes,' said Arthur. "'We'd be mad, all things considered, "'to think this was South End.' "'Well, do you think this is South End?' "'Oh, yes.' "'So do I. "'Therefore we must be mad. "'Nice day for it.' Madness, reason, surrealism, right? Um, I found this a really interesting conversation in the context of the surrealism of the improbability drive, right? The manifestation of... So there are the two different zones in the heart of gold. There's the... What what do they call it? Improbability-free zone or improbability-proof room, Right, the control room of the of the heart of gold is improbability proof. I don't know what that means at all, uh, or how that's contrived. But okay, um, accepting that, um, we are first introduced to the heart of gold in the Im- not improbability proof section. Right, um, What I'm interested in here is the way that they're playing with logic, right? What is madness? And what is... Ultimately, what we're going to be coming up against in these following chapters, as the chapters get quite short in this part of the book. Um, In the coming chapters, as they enter into the Heart of Gold here, is the question of what is impossible, Right? What is impossible? 
and what is merely very, very, very improbable. And the they're sort of I mean again this is this is this 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 is you know, this conversation is funny, you know, I mean it's a joke um about sort of madness and reason. Um and yet I'm interested in the fact that they're drawing sort of logical conclusions about whether or not they must be mad, right? Um, whereas, like, in theory, it would be impossible for them to be able to draw such firm conclusions and improbable that they would be quite so calm about it if they were able to do that, right? Um, but that seems to me to be a really interesting kind of contextualization of what we're, com- of what we're coming to. Um, in the improbability drive. I find that sort of surrealist passages, you know, and the exchange, you know, um, you're turning into a penguin, stop it, and all that stuff, um, is, uh, it's, it's funny, you know, and it's interesting to me that he chooses to manifest improbability by having all of these surrealistic effects happening, right? Like, that what it would look like to exist in a state of massive improbability would be a gigantic vat of custard suddenly appearing and dumping over your head, right? Um, or, you know, having your limbs get up and walk around. Um, that's a little strange to me, but again, what it seems to offset or what it seems to prepare us for or to, um, or even in a sense to contrast with is the improbabilities that come later on. Now, when we get the improbability drive itself, uh, I come back to the surrealism of the underlying metaphor, right? Here's the origin of the improbability. It's the explanation of and the, the, the discussion of the origins of the improbability drive. Then one day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning this way. If, he thought to himself, such a machine is a virtual impossibility, then it must logically be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one work, in order to make one, is to work out exactly how improbable it is, feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. He did this and was rather startled to discover that he had managed to create the long-sought-after golden infant improbability generator out of thin air. Um, and, um, the, the, the operative phrase here, I think, would be thin air, right? Um, the improbability drive is not explained at all. There's no gesture towards explaining it, right? Uh, his explanation of its origins, I feel like just in case you were briefly taking him seriously about impossibility versus finite improbabilities, right? Uh, Just in case you were beginning to take all that seriously and think that this might make some sense, he throws in the fresh cup of really hot tea uh, to, I think, really emphasize the total hand-waving here. In fact, his description of this machine and how it works is about as earnest and effective as Arthur and Ford's analysis of Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz's poem, right? Um, 
the important thing here is that the infinite improbability generator appears to everyone's surprise out of thin air. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, uh, again, the surrealism of the underlying metaphor, right? The improbability drive seems to be an underlying metaphor strongly connected with surrealism, right? Because all of that stuff, you know, the penguins, the, the, uh, the you know, the custard, everything else that is happening, and, 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 and I love it, it's really a fun nonsense passage, right? Um, just like a fun nonsense poem, right? Um, all that stuff is entertaining, but then we come down to the really serious improbability. And the really serious improbability is the narrative improbability, right? They sh- they Not only were they saved by this ship in the 30 seconds that they had to live in the vastness of space, um, but they're picked up by Arthur... Uh, by, no, um, sorry, by Ford's... What's the word? What what's the prefix they put before cousin? I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on the. He's his his what cousin? His uh, semi cousin. Thank you. Yeah, semi cousin. Um, it's not only that it's Ford's semi cousin and close childhood friend, Zephyr Beeblebrox. Um, that's only the, you know, and we we see Ford's amazement. Right, the five different expressions of of surprise and amazement that are trying to cross his face at the same time. Right, uh, Ford's transport of joy and delight and surprise um, at the astounding coincidence that he was not only saved from death but saved from death by somebody that he knows, right, and and is really close to. And that, of course, turns out to be the simplest, most basic level of coincidence that is operating here, right? Arthur goggles at this coincidence. You mean you know this guy? He said, waving a wild finger at Zaphod. Know him, exclaimed Ford. He's... He paused and decided to do the introductions the other way around. Oh, Zaphod, this is a friend of mine, Arthur Dent, he said. I saved him when his planet blew up. Oh, sure, said Zaphod. Hi, Arthur, glad you could make it. His right-hand head looked round casually, said... Hi, and went back to having its teeth picked. Ford carried on. And Arthur, he said, this is my semi oh, it says it right there. This is my semi cousin Zaphod Beep. We've met, said Arthur sharply. That coincidence, of course, is far greater than the other one. Um and uh Ford, of course, is absolutely staggered at the fact that he's met that that they've met. Where did they meet? He was the gate crasher at the party in Islington, whose flat's phone number is the same as the probability factor given in the guide, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? The uh, the f- the fact commemorated by their being saved, right? Um, I wish you'd stop sulking about that bloody planet," said Ford. "Who was the lady? 
Oh, just somebody. Well, all right, I wasn't doing very well with her. I'd been trying all evening. Hell, she was a ma- she was something, though. Beautiful, charming, devastatingly intelligent. At last I'd got her to myself for a bit and was plying her with a bit of talk when this friend of yours barges up and says, Hey, doll, is this guy boring you? Why don't you talk to me instead? I'm from a different planet. I never saw her again. Zephod? exclaimed Ford. Yes, said Arthur, glaring at him and trying not to feel foolish. He only had the two arms and the one head, and he called himself Phil, but... But you must admit, he did turn out to be from another planet, said Trillian, wandering into sight at the other end of the bridge. She gave Arthur a pleasant smile, which settled on him like a ton of bricks, and then turned her attention to the ship's controls again. The real improbability, right? The improbability for which the custard and the penguins and everything else is just a surrealistic metaphor, right, uh, is the narrative improbability, right? And this is something that happens a lot, right, is a, a frequent challenge, to stories and to storytelling, right? Um, the coincidental meeting of all of these different characters. I know, I don't know if I'm supposed to be reminded of this or anything, but what I couldn't help but think of is uh, a Dickens novel at this point. Uh, anyone who's read a Dickens novel will know what I'm talking about, right? This is a, a classic trend in Dickens novels. Um, Dickin, Dickens uh, has a Oh, it's not perfectly strict. It's not 100%. But he has a fairly strict law of the conservation of characters, right? That is to say, you know, it's, it's, it's always... You can count on this, right? If uh, you meet a random minor character who, like, you know, is given a shilling to go and purchase something from the store for somebody and comes back and says he can't find it or whatever, you know that that character is later on in the book going to turn out to be really important for some reason or other, right? Um, uh, It's always, always really important, right? Um, uh, There are no minor characters, right? Um, Everybody is always connected to everything. And Veronica, yes, Great Expectations is a great example of this. The only reason that Pip can't figure out who his benefactor is is that he's not read enough Dickens novels, obviously, right? Because we're introduced to a character, an apparently minor character who seems to vanish at the beginning of the story, and if you think that he's not hanging around again and not going to come back and be super important to the rest of the book, it's just because you haven't read enough Dickens novels, right? Um, I... This is a trend in storytelling, right? Uh, to have, to sort of establish these kinds of connections, to make everything kind of fit together and work together within the story. Um, and one of the things, as a storyteller, that you kind of wrestle with is the intrinsic improbability of the story happening, right? Um, Adams really spotlights this, right? Um, By heaping incredibly unlikely coincidence on incredibly unlikely coincidence. And of course, he has set that up even more strongly at the beginning by emphasizing the, what was his phrase? Uh, Totally staggering coincidence, 
that the odds against being saved in space like Arthur and Ford are is the same as the phone number of an Islington flat that Arthur once went to, right? But again, we don't even realize yet exactly how staggering that coincidence is. That, in fact, it begins to seem... It begins to seem impossible to really believe that this is this stuff is a coincidence at all, right? Um, this, there is, this seems like destiny, right? That, that flat on that night, right? When Arthur, Zaphod Beeblebrox, and Trisha McMillian, a.k.a. Trillian, all come together and that, like, they are bound together by this string of coincidences, uh, including to the Hitchhiker's Guide with, the, you know, with the, by, by the phone number. And remember, uh, the shipboard computer, who Zephod is too busy telling to shut up to listen to what it says, though Trillian hears it, right? Um, that your life is determined by phone by telephone numbers, right? That it is really significant. Um, yeah. And in the midst of all of this, we have an engine, an actual machine, right? Which is generating almost infinite improbability. Um, and so therefore, we don't need, th- there need be no explanation. I love the exchange between Zephod and Trillian at the end of that chapter when all the coincidences come out. And he says, so should we expect things like this every time we use the improbability drive, right? Is, is this going to happen all the time? You know, this kind of like ludicrous coincidence upon ludicrous coincidence. Um, and she says very probably, right? Um, but this is where I begin to wonder what is coming back to the narrator and the point of view of the narrator, right? Because there's a further level of improbability here that the phone number of a flat on planet Earth, right? That Earth being as insignificant as it is, as the narrator insisted in the first paragraph of the book, and now posthumously insignificant, right? Yet seems to be the apex of everything, right? Seems to be the, uh, the, I mean, everything here, the sort of the product of the improbability drive, all of it revolves around Earth, this one party in Islington on planet Earth, right? Think about that. Think about the narrator's um, connection. That is, think about the narrator's target audience of humans. Um, Think about deep thought uh, as we're going to meet him next time. Um, Because, of course, we will later, we will soon, I should say, be given even more reason to think that it's not a coincidence, in fact, that the Earth actually is at the epicenter of things, right? 
um, in the sort of the final irony of, uh, of the whole thing. And yes, Tom, I agree, the very worst poetry of all time was also on planet Earth, so that just shows you how central it is uh, uh, and how important it is to the galaxy as a whole. All right. Um, I will let you guys go. It's getting late. Um, we will come back next week. So we'll have uh, we'll have class next week. Then we'll skip a week. Uh, so the week uh, the week of Christmas. So the twenty seventh, uh, we will not have uh, class. We won't meet uh, on the twenty seventh. But we will meet the week after that. And then we got to skip another week because I'll be down in Texas for Tex Moot. And then uh, we'll be so. I'll only we'll only have two more, but we've got to space them every two weeks at that point. So the final class will be on the 18th or something like that. Anyway, okay. Um, so uh, that's the schedule, but we'll be back again next week. All right, so we'll continue to try to put this stuff together next time. Thanks for bearing with me, uh, and I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>